When you picture the face of God, what expression is on his face? Well, you imagine that for a moment. Is he stern and serious? Maybe you grew up in a church where God leaves no room for laughter, leaves no room to give him trivial things. When you picture the face of God, what expression is on his face? Maybe he's just disinterested and distant, leaving no room for small talk, certainly no room for patience, and understanding that your growth is taking a lot longer than you wanted. Maybe even worse, in your mind, when you think of God, my spiritual director even mentioned it this week, a lot of us, when we think of Jesus, we don't think of these things. But when we think of God as Father, we sometimes think of these images like, is he angry and vengeful? Leaving no room for mercy in your life? Leaving leaving no room for second chances? For hope? Maybe to others, you think, but certainly not to you. Or... Is God, when you imagine his face, is he relaxed and courteous? Leaving lots of room for small talk, laughter, patience, mercy, grace, and wants to hear about all the little things of life. This line here by Richard Foster is so helpful. I don't know if you believe it. God delights in our asking, looking for an excuse to give. Sadly, what we believe is to study the scriptures, and I believe that this is the type of God we serve according to the Bible, but you can take the Bible out of its context, not understand the whole scripture, and you start to believe that this is not, any, this is not God at all, that God is a God who doesn't delight in our asking, especially somebody like you. He doesn't look for excuses to give, rather he looks for excuses to punish. One of my deep desires in my life as I pastor is to help people not just know, but to live out and believe this reality. And so we're going to talk about, we've been, this, this is on part four today, of how to talk with God. I want to talk about this form of prayer that I think a lot of us uh, kind of misunderstand or don't even participate in. These next couple of weeks, we're going to look at these two types of prayer. Uh, mainly tonight, we're going to look at this one. So the first is intercession. Intercession, what does that mean? It's a very churchy word. It's asking God on behalf of others. And so when somebody is sick, somebody needs to hear the gospel, something, you know, there is a need outside of you and you are making intercession on their behalf. You're asking God to do what only he can do for their life. Maybe you're like me. This feels a lot more comfortable to do, especially when you compare and contrast with the next type of prayer. Another type of prayer, you see this in Philippians 4, you see this in other places, you see this tonight in Luke 11, is called petition. I understand petition, such a churchy word, right? Like, what does that even mean? Petition is asking God on behalf of yourself. See, I think there's a lot of churches where I think this is all they ever talk about is petition. Come to God and fix all of your issues. It's all about you, you, you. But I do think with the culture at our church, I felt really kind of led to preach this message because I think if we're honest, you and I, we have a hard time preaching for ourselves. Feel selfish feels self-indulgent. It feels like other people have greater needs than me. Why would I ask for myself? And so the title of tonight's message, and I pray is helpful for you, is how to pray for yourself. And I believe the Lord wants us to do that. So let's pray for yourself. Let's do it right now. Father God, thank you for the thunder in the distance. Thank you, God, for the mercy of rain. God, I ask, I just know there are people in this room 
because we're humans. God, we're hurting. We're broken. What makes it even harder is our image of you, God, is that of being vengeful or distant or not caring. But God, we just ask you to change the disposition of our heart. Give us a a better view of who you are, God, that you are a God who loves, that you are looking for excuses to give, not just to the world, but to us, to me. And God, I just ask you that you would tear away some lies, help us with the truth, God, and may we step further into your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says, amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 11. We almost did this entire series. If you notice, we typically pick a book and run through it. I sometimes feel like there's a topic that the Lord is leading us to go through. We specifically do this a lot in the summer where we kind of stop going through a book verse by verse. and We kind of cover an overall topic. We almost went through just in the book of Luke because there's so many times in the book of Luke where it shows Jesus praying. It's almost like Luke's whole point of writing his gospel is to show, look at all the different ways Jesus talks to God, his Father. We see Jesus in Luke praying when he's joyful. We see Jesus praying when he is in complete agony and bleeding sweat. We see Jesus praying with others around him, inviting him into the circle. We also see Jesus praying often alone in the middle of the night, completely isolated, just having time with his Father. And so by the time we get to Luke 11... The disciples are convinced. They've spent enough time to see Jesus' power, his gentleness, the way he changes a room, how he's lowly in heart. He just has it all. And they finally figured out what what the key is, what the secret is to his life. Notice this phrase in verse one. It says, he was praying, Jesus, in a certain place. And when he finished praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. This is actually the only time you see in the Gospels where they explicitly say, teach us about this thing. And they, the one thing they want to be taught about, they've been living life with God. It's not how to do miracles, how to walk on water, any of those things. They recognize the power that he's walking in is his ability to pray, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And so in Jesus' infinite wisdom, he simplifies prayer. He shows you this is like, this is the elements to prayer. He's, he's like a Baptist pastor. He's like, here's four points that you need to walk through. Unfortunately, they don't rhyme. It's all right. And here, do these four points, and it's a rhythm of prayer. And I want to invite you tonight to kind of enter into this rhythm. Of course, we know Matthew 6 is a fuller version of the Lord's Prayer. Luke is a little bit more brief, but they both pack a huge punch. Verse 2 He, Jesus, said to them, whenever you pray, not if you pray, by the way, it's whenever you do pray, say, Father. A lot of us, we have to do a lot of unpacking. We do a lot at our church and discipleship and spiritual formation retreats, even recognizing and trying to come to the reality that Jesus is your Father, and despite maybe you had a bad Father, He is a good Father. So some of us just need to sit there in your prayer and acknowledge God, as he is a creator, he is righteous, he's powerful, but Jesus says, okay, acknowledge him as your father. Notice that relationship language. He says, your name be honored as holy. Holy means set apart. Your kingdom come. 
Matthew's version says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom is where Jesus is ruling and reigning. It's a new way of life, full of prospering, full of joy, full of community, like we're seeking to do here at our church. And really notice, this is the first half of the prayer. And notice the your. Your name be honored. Your kingdom come. One pastor said, the first half of this prayer is about us getting into God's reality. It's all about you. I'm acknowledging where you're at, who you are. I want your kingdom. So we're kind of setting a heart saying we want your reality to be in our life. We want you. But notice the second half of this prayer is actually getting God into our reality. Which a lot of us skip. Again, I think in the kind of culture of our church, we love this part. But the next half is just as important. First he says in verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone. Somebody needs to see that. Everyone in debt to us, and do not bring us into temptation. Isn't this rain? I love it. I'm not even distracted, are we? We're not distracted. But notice here the words us now. So it was your kingdom, your name. Now give us, forgive us, in debt to us. Do not bring us. He changes the prayer. And some of us, that's just your takeaway tonight. You can pray about yourself. We pray about others. We pray about God. It is okay to say, okay, but what about me? What about us? And so I want us to examine, what does he mean when he says, give us, forgive us, and do not bring us? So first, give us each day our daily bread. What's great about this command, as we see it give us, it's written in the Greek to mean it's continuous present. All that means is he's essentially saying, keep giving us. It's a a prayer, it's a request we make every day. It's actually okay to make this request every hour. It's not just one time and now you have your bases covered. It's a daily prayer for the daily bread. Keep giving us, God, this daily bread. And I've noticed this more and more. God's style of giving isn't giving you at one moment a one-year supply of Chick-fil-A sandwiches all at once. It's not like you win the award, which wouldn't that be incredible in the name of Jesus, right? But the way you, amen, the way you win that award is not, okay, a year supply, a Mack truck comes, backs into your house, and gives you a whole year's worth right away. What does Chick-fil-A do? Because they are a people of God, right? They do. It's, okay, keep coming back, and every day we will give you another one. This is how the Lord works. It's not all at once. It's a daily ask for requests. Another thing, though, um, the call is to ask for today's needs. Give us this day our daily bread. And so this is where a lot of people kind of say, okay, as Americans, we have no right to pray about this anymore because most of us are fed. I can kind of see that. Warren Wearsby, he has this quote that I think is clever because it rhymes. And you know my affection for rhyming. He says, ask God to provide for your needs, not your greeds. And I think that's great. And some of us, we need to stop being so greedy. But as I was studying this passage this week, I think, again, this goes back to our perception of God. What if you do ask for things that are beyond your needs? I think it actually shows how much you love your father and how much you believe in him. And you expect great things from him. Like, for example, some of us, uh, we have to answer this question. Is God against you having a vacation? It's not a need. But man, it's fun. It's a joyful thing. Is God against you all of a sudden finding a lot of money in order to get out of debt and kind of get your life organized? I don't think so. 
Is God against you praying for that perfect parking spot so you don't have to run in the rain to church? I, don't, I think he's cool with that. He's a good God. He's relaxed. He's courteous. I don't see, I think some of us, we take this so far and think, man, there's no way I can ask for any of these things. And we think it honors God, but it actually dishonors him. And what I'm learning is I would rather err on the side of asking too much than to go to heaven and realize I asked for far too little. Luke 11, verse 5, Jesus really wants to make this point. He wants to make it abundantly clear. We need to bother God with all sorts of requests. Verse 5, he says, he also said to them, so there's your prayer format. Now, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight. Please don't do this to me, okay? And says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because of a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. That makes it even worse. You woke up the children. Like that's gone too far. Amen. When people knock on my door like past seven, I'm like, don't you know kids are sleeping? You know, that's my seven o'clock is like, wow, this is way too late for any sort of human interaction. Okay. And I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. So of this reserved nature, like, okay, this is just bad timing. But I love this next verse. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet uh, he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. I need to go back to sleep. Okay, whatever. What do you need? I'm going to give you even more to make sure you don't come back. I love this illustration. Now, of course, God isn't bothered by us. But I think the key line here is this shameless boldness. In your prayers to God, are you shameless in your boldness? You know, he could have just stopped asking and moved on to the next neighbor. But instead, he realized, I don't care. I'm going to keep persisting until I get it. And I think we as children of God, we forget the spiritual principle. God is telling us, keep asking. No request is too small. Be shameless. God is like saying, annoy me. Keep knocking on my door. Read Luke 18, the same principle. Write this down. Look, no request is too trite when you know you are God's delight. Nothing too small. Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He talks about who dare would wake up the king at 4 a.m. for a cup of water. Who would do that? His son, of course, because it's his dad. He has no problem waking up the king. And this is us. We are his delight. And so we request. And the reality is, in his infinite wisdom, he can say no. But it's not, it's false humility for us to assume he'll say no. Just ask. See what God will do. Maybe he's waiting until you ask. Second, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. This is a lot here. This is pretty incredible to me that Jesus actually first asks us to say, hey, give me God, and then we request to forgive. A lot of us, we think the first thing we have to do is ask for forgiveness or else there's no way God is hearing us. But it's pretty fascinating, right? God says, okay, start out by saying, give me this. Oh, and forgive me of that. I find it fascinating. Now, there is a lot to be forgiven of. You and I, the reason we need forgiveness from God, there's at least three types of sins. One is called sin of omission, and that's not doing what God commanded you to do. 
Most of us don't think of that one. We think of the second one, sin of commission, which is doing what God commanded us not to do. Both are equal in sin. But the last sin that we often don't think about is the sin of imperfection, which means you do the right thing for all the wrong reasons. So we have a lot of debt. There's a lot of sin, and it has fragmented our relationships. It has disintegrated our soul, and it separates us from loving communion with God. And so Jesus is saying, you don't have to live that way. The, beauty thing, the beautiful thing is just ask for forgiveness, and it will be given to you. But here's what's hard for a lot of people. Notice how this forgiveness is like conditional. Other translations say, for we ourselves, uh, uh, let's look at this, actually, Matthew 6. He says, for if you forgive others, this is actually right after the Lord's Prayer in the Matthew 6 version. For, for if you forgive others their offense, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. Notice that if language. It kind of seems troubling. He says, but if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. This is so hard for me because I think, man, I, doesn't God just forgive? It's not really up to me at all. And so I was even struggling with that this week, kind of thinking through, trying to wrestle with the text, because God clearly is saying this is a reality. And so something I kind of found, he's talking about the nature of the created order. I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said, look, I cannot receive love if I do not give love. This is just how nature works. The reality is you and I, we cannot receive forgiveness until we give it. St. Augustine put it this way. He says, God gives where he finds empty hands. Look, write this down. I cannot receive forgiveness if my hands are full of bitterness. This is actually for our good. Jesus is saying, look, you cannot walk in forgiveness if you also don't give it. And this is hard, man. There's some people. (laughs) There's some people. It's hard to forgive. But this should actually give us a holy fear and reverence and go, okay, God, I know I want to be forgiven. So I need you to help me, but I'm going to take the steps to forgive them. And this is a sign of genuine repentance. It's something I really fear when I see in others who claim to be followers of the way, involved in church, and yet they are so bitter about people. They hold grudges against people. They refuse to forgive. They refuse to own up to what they've done. It's really scary because here's what I believe. Jesus gives another parable that says, look, we learn how to forgive once we recognize how much we've been forgiven. Once we realize how much we've done wrong, and yet God has completely wiped it away, it totally empowers us to forgive those who are around us. So something to think about and wrestle with with God. Is there somebody you just have not forgiven? It's not the way of Jesus, and that is a hard life to live. The next thing he says, this is the last phrase, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now temptation, James 1.13 specifically addresses this. It doesn't mean God is the one who tempts you to do evil. Uh, James says, no, that is not it at all. There's, some, there's two ways people understand this phrase, do not lead us into temptation. One is temptation can also be translated as trial. So it's essentially saying, God, can you just keep me from some suffering? Can you keep me away from these hard trials? The second way, though, and I think in this context, especially because of the second line, what I think it means the most, do not bring us into temptation, means, God, I'm asking you to give me a heart that is able to flee from sin. Like, I'm asking you, God, to give me a heart that loves the thing that God loves and hate the things that God hates. 
Don't be shy to ask God for help. God, I'm tired of sinning. I need your help. Give me this heart that runs away and flees from sin. And God will give this to you. So that is one thing. Look, you can't fight sin on your own, so he's asking for God's help. But then it says, but deliver us from the evil one. This is really hard for us as modern Western Christians. It's hard for us to acknowledge that there is a Satan, but there is. 1 Peter 5.8, for example, says the enemy is real. He prowls and roars around like a, like a roaring lion, right, ready to devour. So he's saying, God, deliver me from the, the satanic realm. Deliver me from evil, the evil one. And I think this is helpful for us, right? Isn't it funny? Jesus just wants us to keep asking these things. He's saying like, hey, ask this every day. Every day when you wake up, ask to be, uh, bring us out of temptation and, and deliver us from the evil one and give us this daily bread. He's telling us, say this over and over. He makes that point in verse 9. He says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock. And the door will be open to you. And I have to admit, I have the skepticism within me when I read this because there has been things that I've asked for and didn't get it, right? This is hard. Look at verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It's pretty fascinating what I think Jesus is telling us. He's saying, this is hard for us to uh, believe, but I've seen this through history. I've seen this in my own life. Sometimes God only moves when we ask him to. He's saying, like, I want to do things in your life, but only until you ask me. I'm not going to do it until you, to, till you ask me. A few other, uh, John 5. Uh, the, Jesus has the crippled man. He sees them. This man's been crippled for over 30 years. What does Jesus ask him? It's a pretty fascinating question to me. Jesus says what? He says, do you want to be healed? Now, I'm thinking, Jesus, he's a cripple, like, for 35 years. Yes, he wants to be healed. He's known as the crippled man. He's been waiting to walk. But why does Jesus say, do you want to be healed? Other places, John 2, 4, Jesus asks, he says, why do you involve me? What do you want from me? He, get, he makes them answer. Mark 10, 51, he says, what do you want me to do for you? It's this beautiful relationship that God has because he wants a relationship with you. He actually has designed our life where he will act if you ask, which is crazy to me. I heard one preacher preaches way better than me. I mean, he can preach the house down. And he kind of gave this illustration about, can you imagine, every time we pray, it's like those conveyor belts. There's these blessings from God, these answers from God. And when we pray, it gets that conveyor belt from heaven running. And it gets so close to dropping down from heaven to earth. But some of us, we stop right before. We don't keep asking. And so the conveyor belt stops and it doesn't drop into our lives. I wonder how many of us we just have not because we ask not. And this is the character of God. He intercedes, but he doesn't intrude. God intercedes, but he doesn't intrude. Of course, he did intrude by coming down to earth to save us. But even still, he doesn't make you follow him. He invites you. And we have to take the invitation. He doesn't intrude. I think we have to see here, there is a blessing in the begging. It develops our character. It actually trains us to know how much God loves us when we beg 
and beg and beg. There is value in the vulnerability of saying, God, I need you. I need you to change this moment. I need you to change the situation. You say it over and over again. This is the invitation that we have. On Friday nights, uh, Jordan mentioned we've been having these Friday fellowships, and we're also having them in July. You know that, right? Okay, good. All right, so we're having them at our house in the month of July a few more times. And so we've been working through this really helpful book. I encourage everybody to get it, even if you're not a part of our Friday fellowships. It's called How We Love. It's by the Yurkovich family. And oh, it's not the five love languages, which I think are helpful, but it's the five love styles. Now, I'm not going to give a whole workshop on what that is. Uh, so I encourage you to go pick it up or join us on Friday nights. But one of the love styles is the vacillator, and that's who I am. And on the website, it defines the vacillator like this. It says, I long for close connection and relationships, but people always let me down. I spend a lot of time in my head trying to process all the disappointments, and I wonder why relationships are so hard. And I love, I was so proud of you. You quoted me. In our effort to avoid Judas the betrayer, we miss out on John the beloved. And that's like my life. Sometimes I don't open up because I'm so terrified of being disappointed, of being hurt. And I mention this because, look, I think one of the reasons for me as I was processing this and I'm thinking, okay, God, I want to be a, a person who goes to you, God, for everything. If I'm honest, I don't ask him for a lot of things, and here's why. If I, dis- if I decrease my demands, I'll decrease my disappointments. If I don't ask him for a lot, I won't be sad when he doesn't give me those things. So I've kind of learned to bring that to God. Okay, God, I, I'm not going to ask because I'm terrified of the fallout when it doesn't happen. I'm not going to get hopeful. I'm not going to get faith-filled. I'm not going to get excited about these opportunities because the higher I go, what do we know? The longer we'll fall. And it's going to hurt even more. But according to this text, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Ask. Risk the disappointment. See what I can do. Keep asking. So I love, for me, I love praying for miracles in other people's lives, but I really actually have a harder time praying for my own. And I've been convicted, and I feel led to bring this up tonight. We've been at this church for two years, and we're so grateful for how gracious HeartCry has been as being a host. We said from the beginning, this is not our forever home. It's like we moved in with our parents just for a little while to get our, you know, debts in order and to be able to, we don't have any debt, but you get the illustration, you know, to get ready to have your own place. And so I just want you, and, and I have to be honest with you as a leader, I have been scared to mention this because I'm scared of more disappointment. But I feel led as your pastor to say, we need a place to call home for Passion Creek. And we need a miracle for God to give us a place. I was with Heart Cry Church before we got this building. And I remember we weren't that big. A lot of people don't kind of forget that. They kind of pack this room now. We were a pretty small group of people. But I remember the leaders were pretty incredible. There was a certain movement of God. There was transformation happening. And as I look back at those years of what Heart Cry was doing that led to this place, I see a lot of similarities to us in the moment that we're in today. And so I just want to ask you to even begin praying in your own life. God, give us a place. If I'm even more honest, there's been a place that I have prayed for for like five years. And I just found out today that that place might be sold somewhere else. And I'm here to say, nah, okay? Maybe the Lord, I hear the contract's not done. So we're asking in the name of Jesus that something would change this week. 
You know how scared I am to say that? Because the last thing I want to do is come next week and go, it was sold. Uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, right? It's hard. It's this tough stuff about leadership. Disappointing yourself, disappointing others. But I think I want to be faithful to the text. And he says, look, be shameless in your boldness. Ask for things. He's a loving and powerful father. Notice his power. In verse 11, what father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? That's a terrible dad, by the way, right? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. We can identify with this as Arizonans. If you then, who are evil, like that Jesus, he's like, you evil folks. Uh, if then who, you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more? What are you willing to give yourself? God wants to give you more. Man, this is a hard message for me. I don't like the self-help gospel. I don't like coming and making it all about us. But goodness gracious, he is saying, know that this actually honors the Father by having shameless, bold prayer, saying, God, I'm asking this because you're a good God. And I know you're powerful. I know it's within the realm of possibilities for you. Look, your vision of God's affection determines the version of your petition. Like I asked in the beginning, when you imagine God's face, what does it look like to you? If we imagine a, lo- if we imagine a loving Father who is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, overflowing with grace and mercy, we have that kind of confidence to be shameless and say, God, I'm asking for this. It sounds selfish, but you're a good God. And I trust you. If you don't want me to have it, that's fine. But I'm going to ask. So I want us to have two practices this week. I'm really convinced we, we need to practice both of these things. So as we get ready to start our week, I want you to write this down and think through how can you do this every day this week. Number one, pray for the biggest blessing you can imagine for your life. What is the biggest blessing you can imagine? Ephesians 3.20 actually says he'll give you more than you can imagine. But try to imagine and then see God go over that. If I'm honest, the biggest blessing I can imagine is for us to have a home. So I'm praying for that this week. So that's number one. Spend time with God this week. Maybe it's a relationship brought back together. Maybe, hey, it's a raise for your job. Like, God, give God all those things. That actually brings me to my next point. Pray for a trivial blessing every day this week. Pray for something that kind of feels silly to pray for. Pray for that parking spot, right? Pray that you have a couple more pieces of gum for the day. I don't know. Pray for something silly. Because God is a God who wants to be involved. But he doesn't intrude. Invite him into the little parts of your life. Invite him into the major parts of your life. And the thing is, it's not selfish. It actually is a way to brag on how good your God is. It's a realization of how loving he is and powerful and restorative and helpful and courteous and relaxing God is. How will you pray this week for your biggest blessing? Every day, despite knowing you might get disappointed, put that thought aside, be shameless. How can you pray for a trivial blessing?
Let's see what God can do. If you remember, my prayer for this series was that you would experience prayer like you never have before. And maybe your opportunity is this week in praying both of these ways.